Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you, God. Just reminded, you tell us in Isaiah that your word will go out and your word will not return void. God, I'm just always so amazed at the way that a message, a song, a prayer can be delivered here. And many of us feel like it was just for us. That only happens by your spirit. That only happens by you opening up the eyes of our hearts. And we pray, God, right now that you would do so. We pray, Holy Spirit, that with all the the things of this world, all the distractions of our life, all the questions swirling around in our head, Lord, would you just come alongside and soften and quiet those distractions? And would you give us a focus right now? We believe that you have a word for us. Help us to receive it. Tune our hearts to hear your voice, Jesus. Have your way. We pray this together in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So we are continuing our series through the book of Romans. We are in the third part of this series where we're looking at what we've been calling gospel life. In the book of Romans, Paul writes that he's not ashamed of the gospel and we've been learning the gospel that, 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 that the first part of the gospel is the bad news and, and the, the opening of Romans is all about our sin and our misery and just this, that, that we're without excuse, but then we're called to faith, to true faith in Jesus. And because of, through our faith, we get, we get access to God. And Paul, out of the, the results of this, starts writing about gospel life. And, and if you were here last week, he talks about one of the first fruits of, of life in Christ, for those who put their faith in Christ, is that we are a people who rejoice in all circumstances, who rejoice in our sufferings, and, and, and we, we work through that first half of chapter five, and then in verses 12 and following, Paul is making an argument, I would say almost like a lawyer talking to the early church, talking to the young believer, talking to the curious mind who's considering Jesus, who's considering faith, and asking themselves, could this be something that is true? And Paul's writing, I believe to you and me today, and in this question, he's asking this question. In this passage, he's asking this question. And the question is, who's your Adam? Who is your Adam? If you've ever been to therapy, met with a therapist, what's the first thing they always ask you? Tell me about your family. Right? I've been to lots of, not lots of therapy, but enough therapy to know that the first few sessions you always have, they always want to know about your parents. And there seems to be something about your nurturing, something about your childhood that has a profound impact on your life. It reminds me of Star Wars, because everything kind of reminds me of Star Wars, right? 
And you see this struggle with Luke Skywalker of, of the, the dark side and the force. And this moment when Luke realizes from Darth Vader, the, the greatest villain of all time. Luke, I am your father. And in this moment, I believe Paul is asking us kind of that question, who's your father? Now, not your biological father right now, but your ancestor. He's asking, who are you from? And he's making the statement, this reality that we kind of all know and believe. He, there's this premise, I believe this big idea in the second, in the second half of chapter 5 as he's talking about gospel life. That, that, that Paul believes that, that the scriptures are teaching us, hear this, that who you're from determines where and how you're going. Let me say that again. Who you're from, who your Adam is, determines where and how you're going. The end point, where. This is talking about your eternal promise. But not just about the, the end of your life, but also about your life now. And you can see this in this language. You're going to see language throughout chapter, the second half of chapter 5, this language of something ruling or reigning. And so it's not just about recognizing that who I'm from determines something. Not just about where I'm going, but also about how I'm going. I love in Australia, you know, when we meet somebody or talk to someone, we say, hey, How's your day going? How are you? In Australia, they say, how are you going? <laughs> I wish I could have an Australian accent, but sorry. How are you going, mate? How about that? This idea that who we're from determines not just where we're going, but how our days go, how our life goes. And the argument that Paul is making is that really, who you're from is one of two Adams. And the default is Adam one. I'm gonna call him Adam one. And the argument that Paul is making as you ask yourself this question is that all the descendants of Adam one, if, if you are from Adam one, if you are a human and you are a descendant of Adam, our origin story in Genesis one, Every, every descendant is infected by his sin and ruled by death. That's kind of what Paul is unpacking as we ask this question, who we're from. Every descendant is infected by his sin and ruled by death. And Paul is making what we would call this theological argument here. Theological, that's a fancy word for the, theo, God, ology, the study of, the study of God. And in your theology, he's making this argument to the believer as they think about who you are, as you think about who you're from, he, he's highlighting this first Adam. And his point is this, not only is everyone who's, who, who believes, everybody who is a human, a descendant, that we have this thing called original sin. In 
in theology class, you'll learn about this. It's called original sin. It's this philosophy that Adam's sin in the garden in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's sin, it produced death. And all die because all sin. This is this argument. Look at what he says here in verse 12 as he highlights this, this theology here. It says this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, this one man, he's talking about Adam, the story of Adam and Eve, they ate of the tree. If you, if you wanna brush up your understanding of that story, go back to Genesis chapter three and go read about Adam and Eve in the garden. It says, just as sin came in, into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul's saying, I love uh, Doug's devotional this week. If you've been doing the reading plan, he writes about how you know the, the COVID pandemic, one of the most devastating pandemics that spread throughout our entire world, millions died, millions got infected. About how that pales in comparison to the sin pandemic. The belief that when Adam and Eve sinned, that we have this philosophical belief, this understanding, this theological premise that that infected all of humanity. And Paul here is saying that the evidence of this is that everybody dies. That God created humanity to live forever in Eden with him, but because of our sin, the, the consequence of that is death. It's the result of that. And, and maybe as you, as you think about this, you ask yourself, or you ask Paul, well, that doesn't seem very fair. He sinned and now we all have this result? Because, like, like, like that, 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 I didn't ask for that. I, I didn't deserve that. And, and, and Paul here is, is, you know, we could get into, I was reading the commentaries, and, and there's pages and books and books debating this idea of original sin. But I truly believe all you got to do to really understand this is just have children, Why is it that you put your kid in the nursery and you come out and the nursery workers, hypothetically, I'm not saying it ever happened to me, they say, uh, your son is biting the other children. Now, at home, did my son learn that from me? Did, did, did he learn that like when you, things don't go your way, when somebody's got the toy, the dinosaur that you want, that, that what daddy taught me is I just go up and I just bite them. Or, or when my boys get in, a, get in an argument and a fight, that, that they literally sometimes will punch each other in the face. Like, was that learned from me? You don't even gotta look at your kids. Actually, just look at yourself and have some honest time of reflecting on your life. 
Go read Romans chapter seven, which we're gonna get to, where Paul says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. And what I, what I hate, I do. There's something about who we are, our existence, the existence of humanity that is just evil and sinful. And I think it all makes sense to us, even though you can debate where it comes, this philosophy of original sin Paul is writing about here. I love what Blaise Pascal, one of the great thinkers, philosophers, he said this. He said, original sin is foolishness to men, but it is admitted to be such. You must not then reproach me for the want of reason in this doctrine, since I admit it to be without reason, but this foolishness is wiser than all the wisdom of men. For without this, what can we say that man is? His whole state depends on this imperceptible point. And how should it be perceived by his reason since it is a thing against reason and since reason far from finding it out by her own ways is averse to it when it is presented to her. In other words, we're born with it. In the same way that Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and were disobedient, we do the same. It's this theology of original sin. And Adam, uh, uh, Paul unpacks this in the following verses. It's really interesting. If you notice in your Bibles, there's this long dash after, first, after verse 12. Paul does something that would really irritate English teachers. He's making an argument. He says, just as sin entered in, and then he never actually completes this idea. He, he, he recognizes that the Hebrew reader would say, wait a second, Paul. The Hebrew reader would say, they read this and they would say, okay, we recognize that sin entered through Adam and, and because God told Adam, don't eat of this tree, and then Adam and Eve ate of this tree and they sinned against God, they knew that it was sin and they did it, they sinned. And then we also know that God gave us the law in Moses, and, and Moses gave the law, so then the people, we now knew what sin was, but what about all the people between Adam and Moses? They weren't told what to do, they weren't told what was right and what is wrong. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul addresses that. And in essence, he just says this, and we just gotta kinda take it for what it is. He says, well, everyone died. Everyone died. And everyone sins, and therefore everyone sins. It's a theological argument. Kinda goes back to Romans chapter one when Paul says, therefore, that we are without excuse because we know deep within us that what is right and what is wrong. And the law highlights that and it makes it even more abounding. We are without excuse. And in verses 13 and 14, he helps the reader to understand that all of us, if we just look at the story of humanity, death is the result of sin. It's, the, it's, the, it's God's righteous way of dealing with this issue. And so we see this here. We have original sin here. We have this theological understanding. 
And once again, it's this question, who are you from? Who are you with? Who's your father? Is it Adam one or is it Adam two? Adam 2.0. And for Adam two, hear this, this is what Paul is arguing here. For Adam two, every descendant is reborn by his death and ruled by righteousness. His death being the death of Adam two. Paul's making this argument here. He has Adam one where, where we see every descendant is infected by Adam's sin and is ruled by death. But Adam two, we are reborn. And not only are we reborn, righteousness rules in the people of Adam two. Before we get into the Romans passage, I believe this is why when Jesus is having this interaction in John chapter three with this this Pharisee, this guy named Nicodemus, and he's asking these questions about this idea of the kingdom of God coming. Jesus answers him, he says this, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You need to be reborn. Nicodemus said to him, how can it be? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he, I love the question he's asking. He's just saying, can he literally enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Is that how it works, God? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about the, the baptism of the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. P.S., we're gonna get more into this in the coming weeks, especially in Romans chapter eight, as we talk about flesh and spirit. But what Paul is getting after here, as we ask our question, and I hope you're asking your question this right now, who do I belong to? Who's my Adam? Is that every descendant is, for Adam too, every descendant is reborn by his death and ruled by righteousness. And then Paul, I believe, in these following verses, gets into this contrast. He says there's this, there's this parallelism going on that, that if you're from Adam, it determines something. If you're from Adam too, it determines something. But don't get it twisted. These Adams are different. And they're different in two ways. One is in degree, in the effect that they have in your life, and the second is in the consequence or the results of being from them. Look at, there's this reference here in, in uh, verse 14. As Paul writes this, he says, the, uh, who was a type, the Adam was a type of the one who was to come. This word type is a word that we, we would use the word typology. It's a foreshadowing that, that Adam, that as we read the story of the Old Testament and we read the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and David and the prophets and the people of Israel, we see time and time again this, this longing for a better Adam. This longing for someone who wouldn't fall. This longing for a king who would be righteous, who, who wouldn't fall. This, this longing for the people to, to, to no longer wander in the wilderness. This, this longing for paradise. And Paul here says, 
that Adam 1 was a type. He said, there's this longing in us. And he says, but don't get it twisted. Adam 2 is different than Adam 1. He says, the free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is what? It's the grace of God. It's the gospel that we've been talking about. The free gift is not like the trespass. There's a contrast here. For if many died through one man's trespass, remember descendant one, Adam died, everyone's infected. Adam sinned, everyone dies. There's this contrast happening in this degree. If you wanna know more about this typology, I would encourage you to go read the book of Hebrews. The entire theme of the book of Hebrews is about Jesus being better. But in essence, as you think about the comparison here between Adam 1 and Adam 2, Paul wants us to know this, that Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus is the better Adam. This theological contrast, as you look at the Adams, Adam 1, Adam 2, Jesus is the better Adam. Look at what he says, it says, the free gift following many trespasses in verse 16 brought justification. This is the the value here that he's getting after. But thanks be to God for this truth. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. We've got over this. The justification is when you put your faith in Jesus. I remember, it reminds me, this word justification, you could also say it's just as if I never sinned. That because of what Christ did, when God looks at me, if I put my faith in him, it's just as if I never sinned. I am no longer infected and Paul is asking this question here who's your Adam he's laying out before you that either you're with Adam 1 or you're with Adam 2 or I could say it another way who do you belong to what is your belonging in this world See, there's also this result of condemnation versus justification. Adam one brings condemnation. Jesus brings what? Justification. As Romans eight unpacks this, it says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do you belong to? I also find it interesting as we just think about the contrast. Think about Adam one and Jesus, Adam two. Adam one faces this temptation in what? Paradise, in a garden, and yet he falls. Adam two, Jesus, he faces temptation what? In a wilderness, fasting. And yet, who wins? Jesus is better. 
And Paul wants the believers in the early church and, and you and I today to think about this question and to think about the implications of what he's speaking about. I don't know about you, I, I tend to be analytical. Maybe it's like the engineering mind in me. I, I, want, I want things to understand. I love Romans because it's like a big whole system. And sometimes for analytical minds like myself, I, I, I understand what, 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 what's being said, but I don't think about like how that really works in life. Like I think for some of us right now, I'm understanding, oh, there's two atoms, but I don't really think about, Paul is saying you're either with this one or you're with that one, and both of those determine something for you. Like it's very much a reality for you. Who's your Adam? I love this question. I think it's a really important question for us to ask each other and ask ourselves. I think there's some implications here. Because remember, who you're from determines where and how you're going. And as we look at this, as you ask yourselves, who's my Adam? Look at verse 17. Because maybe you're asking yourself, or maybe you're thinking, well, I sure hope Adam 2's my Adam. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I, as I look at like the effects of both of these, I would like the one that's greater. I would like the one that brings justification. I would like the one that brings life. And so, so how do I like know who my Adam is? Look at verse 17. It says this. But thanks, oh, that's chapter six. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who, circle this word, receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Receive. As you reflect on this question, the most important thing for you and I to know is that God is calling us, calling you to receive your inheritance actively. Or I'd like to say, smile. Luther, as he looks at chapter five in his commentary, he says that you cannot read this chapter without catching a hint of the joy and the happiness of chapter five. I don't know about your family, but I know for many of us, our heritage, our lineage is important to us. For some of us, it's traumatic. For some of us, there's abuse and there's issues that we've worked through. For some of us, we had wonderful parents and grandparents. For some of us, we don't even know them. And Paul's argument here is that the believer can say, I am a child of Adam too. 
that ultimately my father is God himself because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so I can smile thinking about the implications of what that means for my life. In the Greek, that word receive, it's not like a one-time thing. It's not meant to be read like receive it, you got fire insurance now, you don't gotta worry about going to hell, now move on and do other things, okay? It's this active receiving. It's this call to the believer to say, yes, you're justified. It's a matter of fact, you can't change it. But you are called now to live a life of receiving grace. Of waking up in the morning and believing morning by morning new mercies I see. Receiving is really a piece of confessing faith. And so I believe that you and I, as we think about who we belong to, that we are called to be actively receiving your inheritance. Throughout the book of Romans, we see this language of inheritance. We're not just like that spoiled kid that doesn't, that doesn't get anything. No, like there's this inheritance and this heir that we're called to live into, that we're called to taste and see. There's this great story of this really wealthy gentleman who married late in life. And this rich man, his, his wife dies, and his son dies. He gets an only child who's like everything for him. And so he passes away, and there's this story, true story, that he has this will, and everybody's gonna be coming to, to learn about his inheritance and there's gonna be this auction on all of his stuff. And in the will, it says something really interesting. It says, before you get into auctioning, the first item I want you to auction is this painting that his son did. And it's not a, you know, masterpiece. And they start the auction and nobody bids and then one of the maids that had been working for him for a while gives a bid on and she, gives, she, she makes this bid because she remembers the way that the father loved the son. And she wants this reminder of this fatherly love for his child. And so bid closes, she gets this painting and then the auctioneer says this ends the auction. And they go on to read that the, that the, the benefactor, yeah, look at me, big words. In the will says, whoever gets the son's painting gets the fortune. Or in other words, whoever gets the son gets the fortune. And this is what the gospel is. It's saying whoever gets the son, whoever gets the Adam, gets the fortune. And we, I had goosebumps thinking about this. I was, I, was, I, was, I was reflecting on this with the teaching team. And you know every once in a while when like you're, you're thinking and, and about these truths and all of a sudden like your eyes just kind of get open to something that you've been talking about for a long time? 
Because not only do, do, do we get to be a part of this, not only are we called to actively receive, we're also called to act righteously. We're called to act righteously, I would say, in step with our ancestor. How can we do that? Well, Jesus is alive. He didn't just die for us, he resurrected. Our great Adam, the Adam too, is alive and he works and he moves and he invites you and me to live and to act righteously with him. And I was thinking about this and thinking about my life and what Paul is saying here. Hear this. Everything you have ever done that is righteous, hear this, this is what he's saying, is Christ's righteousness. He's saying that that is actually the playing out of being a child of Adam too. And I was just thinking about that. I was thinking about my life, I was thinking about the things that God has done, thinking about the ways where it seems like God's been doing a righteous work and it can be really easy for us to own those things as our own, but they're not ours. They're actually the imputed righteousness of Christ working through his instruments. And so as we think about this, we're called to act righteously in this way. Now, you may read this and say, that's awesome, Pastor Logan, but I go to bed at night and I think, wow, I think I had a lot more Adam one in me today. Can I get an amen? Don't worry, we'll get into Romans seven and Paul's gonna write, talk about, he says, I don't understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do. There's still this struggling, this turmoil. But yet the gospel says, that yes, we are to receive, yes, we are to, to work at, at living righteously, but if you're like me, and oftentimes you go to bed and you think, oh man, I could have handled that a little differently. Oh man, perhaps a little bit of my ego and my arrogance and my pride came out, and even though I didn't want to, I acted out. Oh man, I wish I hadn't yelled at my child like that. Oh man, I wish I hadn't responded in this way to this person. Oh man, I wish I hadn't fallen back more into that besetting sin, that struggle. Oh man, how am I gonna sleep at night? Oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of Adam one. I thought I was with Adam two, but I, if I look at my life, Something, some voices seem to be telling me that, that I'm still stuck in the flesh. I would tell you this. You gotta receive, you gotta act righteously, but above all, we need to rest in God's abundant grace. Someone here needs to hear this today. You belong. If you have confessed your faith in Jesus, you belong. One of my favorite statements is from the Heidelberg Catechism and it says this, what is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. And remember, who you belong to determines where you're going and how you're going.
you could, if you, in your Bibles, just read this closing part here. Verses 18 and following. Verses 20 and following. It says, for you were slaves in sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you? Oh, I'm reading the wrong passage again. I was like, what in the world? Therefore, as one trespass led to, all con- to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, the work of Christ, led to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Hear this. But where sin is increased, what does it say? Grace abounded more. Turn that to, your, to the person next to you and say, grace abounds. Grace abounds. So that as sin reigned in death, in Adam's sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love the song we sing, and that grace holds the ground where the grave did. As we close this time, as you think about this invitation, as you think about who your Adam is, I wanted to read closing thoughts of a sermon by a guy named Charles Spurgeon. It's my favorite. The Prince of Preachers, and he, he wrote a, a sermon on, called Grace Abounding. If you like to read, I would encourage you to look it up. Just look up Grace Abounding by Charles Spurgeon. And I'd like to just read this closing thought here. Almanor, you can come out and just put some music behind me. And if you could, as I, as, I, as I read this, I'd like you to close your eyes and I'd like you to picture the grace of God. As you ask yourself who you belong to, as you ask yourself, what is abounding in my life? Hear this. It says, see him toiling painfully through the crowded streets, scoffed at by the, by the multitude, mourned by the daughters of Jerusalem. Watch him at last as he ascends the hill of, do, of doom. See him hanging on the cross in indescribable agony while the heartless spectators jeer and scoff. And they make a jest even of his dying cries. And they say, if sin did not abound here, What foaming billows of iniquity rolled up around the accursed tree, swelling and rising until they completely immersed the Lord of life and glory in their horrible deaths. Yes, truly sin abounded there. Surely it was the darkest day in human history. Wicked men had killed kings before, but that day they killed the king of kings. They killed the son of God. They cast him out of the vineyard saying, this is the heir and now that we have killed him, the inheritance shall be ours. Sin abounded so much that it put out the light of the sun. So heavy was it that it cracked the solid earth and split the rocks asunder and caused the graves to open while the great veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Yet, Where sin abounded, 
grace abounded much more. Oh, for the angel's tongue to proclaim the amazing mystery. My poor lips are quite unequal to this tremendous task. It is vain for me to attempt to describe the grace that so gloriously abounded in our Lord on the cross. The grace that flashed graciously from those languid eyes. The grace that fell in cleansing drops from those opened veins. The grace that poured in torrents from that pierced side. The grace that heaved and tossed and struggled convulsively in those tortured limbs. The grace that fought and wrestled and at last conquered in that anguished spirit. The grace that even then began interceding for the transgressors as Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. The grace that cried with a mighty voice, it is finished. Before the Savior bowed his head and cried with a mighty voice, Gave up his ghost, the grace that ascended up on high, leading captives captives and giving gifts to men. Oh, this grace, I will not dare to speak further than to say and hear this, beloved. May it be your happy lot to sail on that sea of grace. For you never can fathom it. May you drink from the fountain of divine grace for you shall never be able to drink it dry. May God give you the bliss of knowing in your own experience how much grace abounds through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross.